Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 11th, 2019, and this is show number 744. I got to say, I really like being back with a live audience. Uh, it is a very lively audience because we actually have Barry Falk in the house. Uh, Barry's the kind of guy that just shows up places, and he sort of just showed up. He's uh, apparently moved into our spare room. He said he likes it here. It's got uh, beer in the fridge, and he's comfortable, so I uh, guess he's going to hang around for a little bit. But I really did miss the uh, live audience when I was gone. It's It's funny how even though I can't hear them, it matters to me that they're there and listening real time. It, it it actually makes a lot more fun. I also wonder whether anybody noticed I, I had trouble with the timing of the intro of the show and I realized I forgot to say the year. So the cadence of that final thing and this is show number what it's supposed to be right on the tone didn't work. See, if the live audience had been there, I would have had a better job doing that. Well, you know, BART is a system admin at a university, which means there's a very wee tiny window of time during the summer when all system upgrades can be done at the university. They really can't risk bringing down the registration system or, you know, systems to see things like the classes and all that kind of stuff. That means that every summer, BART is positively slammed at work for a short period of time. Now, I've only just noticed this is a consistent pattern, even though we've been recording together for over a decade. Now, the effect on you is that our normal schedule of programming by stealth every other week gets disrupted. Add that to or add to that my numerous vacations, and the result is that we haven't published a programming by stealth since July 12th. I got to tell you, you know, the enormous amount of work and mental energy that goes into creating these lessons is simply not there for Bart during the summer. The good news is that he's been noodling an idea to tell you guys about the technology of choosing a new bicycle. Now, I thought I was something I knew a fair bit about. It's not like I'm an avid cyclist, but I mean, I know what like brakes are in a seat and, you know, I thought I knew what bikes were. But when we recorded Chit Chat Across the Pond this week to talk bike tech, I was astonished at how little I knew about modern bicycles. We had a lot of fun and it flowed easily for Bart, so it wasn't hard for him, too hard for him to put together to at least get you a chit-chat across the pond, if not a programming by stealth. We will get back to that soon, I promise. Anyway, you can find this week's episode number 604 in your chit-chat across the pond light feed or in the full chit-chat across the pond feed. And of course, you can always listen over at podfeet.com. One more thing I wanted to tell you was that after Bart and I recorded and after I um, got the show ready, um, Bart created a little video where he walked around his bike and he pointed at all the things he talks about in that segment. So if you want to actually see what he talks about after you listen to the show to Chit Chat Across the Pond, go over and look at the blog post down at the very bottom and you can watch Bart's video. Let's start off the show with another interesting find by Caleb Fong, also known as Geeko Supremo, pretty much everywhere. So we spend an ever-increasing amount of time in our web browsers. This trend is not going down as even more things become accessible via the web. This means we spend a large amount of our time looking and sometimes interacting with the default new tab screen. While this isn't all bad, the information on these pages can sometimes distract you from getting to your intended task. How can we curb this and bring a little mental break into our daily routine? Enter the tabless add-on. This add-on changes the default new tab page to one of our choice and design. By default, tablets will display a full window image from Unsplash as the background. On a layer above the photo is a clock set center middle, a greeting below the clock, and in one of the lower corners is 
a group of links crediting the photographer. In the top left is the diminutive menu buttons. The menu buttons are customized tablets, which is a gear icon, toggle widgets, which is an icon of an eye and will turn the visibility of the widgets on and off so you can just look at the background if you want to, and full screen, which is an icon of two outward pointing arrows indicating expansion, meaning it will go full screen. Now while this layout is good, it lacks that personal touch. So when we open Customize Tablets by clicking on the gear icon, a sidebar slides into view with the options. At the top are the background options. From the drop-down at the top, we can change the source of the background. It can be a solid color, gradient, a photo from Unsplash, or an image from Jiffy. I do not recommend the image from Jiffy as that could be distracting. But it's a fun choice if that's what you're in the mood for. When using the default Unsplash, there are some nice options below the main dropdown. The first is to show a new photo. The dropdown lets us change the frequency with which the photos rotate. We can also set the group of photos that are to be used in rotation by setting a custom collection or a custom search, again from Unsplash. The blur and darken sliders are nice for tweaking how much of the image is visible behind the text. As you add more textual elements, this may become more useful. Now we move on to widgets. These are where you can add lots of functionality. You can add a to-do list, an RSS reader, inspirational quotes, and several other pre-built widgets. When you select one from the drop-down, they are automatically added. You'll see them in a list below the drop-down. The plus button is a bit of a misnomer since what it does is open the options for that widget. And once open, the minus or dash will close the widget. These you can customize as you see fit. And if you're feeling adventurous, you can stretch your CSS muscles and add the custom CSS widget. Have a lot of fun there. For me, I use the base setup with a to-do list and the weather widget. Ideally, I put the top three things I want to get done in the to-do list in the morning. And then throughout the day, I always have them brought into view. Then there's the weather widget because my office has no windows and I have no idea what it's like outside unless I actually go outside. The main thing to do is find a nice arrangement that works for you. There are, there are not too many widgets, and so it's hard to get carried away. So you will generally end up with a useful page that will give you a place to breathe and help you stay focused. Enjoy. Well, you know, I played around with Tablas after I uh, listened to Caleb's recording, and I discovered that it works in Chrome as well as Firefox, and there's even a web version. Now, that sounds kind of weird, but it would make a nice homepage for any browser. I uploaded a very peaceful photo of the lake from our vacation, and it really makes me happy to look at it. I guess that's the bliss part of Tablas. Now, there is no Safari extension, but you can kind of make it work there, too. If you go to web.tablist.io, the web version, you can configure the web page just like the extension in the other browsers. Then you set your homepage to that URL and set new tabs to the homepage, and you've got all the functionality in Safari. Now, I did use it for a while, but I realized how often I hit Command-T and then I want to type right away into the URL bar to, to search for something on Google, and that's not there anymore, so I took it off. But if you don't use that, it is pretty cool, and you can use it in Safari or just use Firefox or Chrome. I got to wonder how Caleb finds so many cool little gems. Well, we got another listener contribution this time from our good friend and Nocilla Castaway, Ed Tobias. 
I would like to review a mind mapping application called FreePlane. I know Allison has already extolled the virtues of mind mapping, so I won't go into all of that. I just want to tell you why I use this particular app for mind mapping. FreePlane was born out of another application called FreeMind, which still exists today. In 2009, it branched off so the developer could go in a different direction with the code. FreePlane is a Java-based app which can run on any platform that supports the Java runtime engine. Mac OS, Windows, and Linux are the most common. And as you can tell by the name, it is a free open source app. A lot of Java-based apps are a little clunky looking and FreePlane is no exception. And though it is not as pretty as a made-for-Mac app, it still has a lot of control over the style and look of the mind map itself. The actual mind map can look just as good as anything from iThoughts or any other mind map app that is made specifically for the Mac. It's just the interface elements and the app itself that look a little non-Mac-like. Even though the interface is not polished, it is still quite easy and intuitive to use. Creating a new child node is done with the tab key and use a return key to create a sibling node. You can also fold and unfold branches with the spacebar, which makes it very convenient. You can also navigate around the map easily using the arrow keys. Using the keyboard to work on the map is convenient, and it's the way I prefer to do it. But I have to admit, if you like to use the drop-down menus, they can be very confusing. At least to me, they don't seem to be organized in a very logical way that makes it somewhat difficult to find menu items. One of the features in FreePlane that distinguish it from other mind mapping apps is the ability to customize each node in very unique ways. Each node has its text internal to the core of the node like any other app, but you can also add detailed text which drops down below the node with a caret. When you click the caret to hide the detailed text, you can see, still see the text by hovering over the node. It appears sort of like a tooltip. You can also add notes to each node, which show up in the notes window below the main map window, just like it would in other mind mapping apps. Each node has its own capability of having attributes, which are key value pairs associated with the node. iThoughts has this capability for managing tasks as well. However, FreePlane can have any attribute of any key value pair that you choose to create. This makes it very powerful. You can also write scripts within these attributes to perform unique functions. A common example is to have an expense attribute which records the dollars you spent on a particular item. And in the parent node attribute, you can write a script that sums up all the expenses listed in the attributes of the children nodes. Formatting of the node can also be highly controlled. You can adjust the formatting of each node and apply a particular style that you create yourself. Or you can have each level of the map have a different style. You can also have conditional styles based upon keywords in the node text or conditions based upon the values of the attributes you created. As an example, I used mind maps to make meeting notes. Whenever there was an action assigned, I would put the word action followed by a colon and the action to be completed in the text of the node. The conditional styles would automatically detect that text and add an action icon to the node as well as make the node a bright orange color so it stands out. 
I've also had nodes where I created an attribute called task complete and it would have a value of yes or no. Once the task was completed, I clicked yes and the text of the node would automatically turn to a light gray color. The node text can also support HTML as well as plain text, just like an email message in the, Mac, in the mail app. And it also supports LaTeX, spelled L-A-T-E-X, which is a markup language used for scientific equations. I've used that a few times and it is really fantastic. There's also a search and filter capability in FreePlane that can either highlight nodes containing your search parameter or display only those nodes and hiding all others. Like other mind mapping apps, you can also attach a link to anything on the web or to a local file, and you can also attach photos to the node. They actually become part of the node and you can resize the picture too. There are a lot of advanced features in Freeplane, not that the ones I've discussed so far aren't advanced, but you can assign any menu items to an F key on the keyboard, which also shows up in an F key toolbar. You can also write external scripts in a language called Groovy, or you can write them in JavaScript as well. These scripts can be attached to the F keys to make them easy to use. In my work life, I used to work on requirements documents, and I would take an entire specification and import it into Freeplane. It would parse each requirement into the nodes using those scripts. I could then drag branches around the map and reorganize my document. The scripting capability is very powerful and I feel it is the key feature that sets Freeplane apart from other mind mapping apps. If you're kind of a geek like most of us are, I think you'll find this application very interesting. You can find Freeplane at www.freeplane.org, and I recommend that you give it a try. Well, I am a true believer in open source tools, so I love the idea of Freeplane. I had used FreeMind 100 years ago, so it's cool to see the new fork of the tool be in active development as well. It's also cool that you can have that automatic color coding by keywords and such. That's really awesome. I love that idea. And I also love that you were able to pull in a spec and have it automatically make nodes. That's crazy cool. And, you know, to be able to move things around and reorder a spec, that's pretty awesome. That's uh, super powerful. Well, I gotta say, after Ed sent me the audio, he sent in another thought about it. He pointed out that Freeplane does not have an iOS companion app, but you can import Freeplane maps into iThoughts on iOS, but it doesn't go the other way. I don't use the iPad for mind maps, so this isn't an issue for me. And he said, if only you could run Java on iOS, now that would be cool. I do like a tool that runs on all platforms, which is one of the reasons I like iThoughts so much. But Ed makes a good point that you could have iThoughts on your iPad, but Freeplane on your Mac. It is interesting. I wonder whether, I don't know, it seems like you should be able to swap them back and forth. I'd have to look into that. I bet there's a way to import XML from iThoughts on the iPad back into Freeplane on the Mac. I'll have to test that out. Anyway, thanks, Ed, for another new tool in our tool belts. On the Mac Geek Gab, Dave Hamilton has been singing the virtues of clipboard managers. These are tools that give you a clipboard history beyond the single most recent thing you've copied. I've been intrigued as I love anything that increases productivity. I recently discovered that Keyboard Maestro has a clipboard manager built right into it, and I already own Keyboard Maestro, so I thought I should give it a try. For the past month or so, I've been trying to figure out what utility that clipboard manager inside Keyboard Maestro will give me, and to be honest, it hadn't really seemed to solve any problem I have. By the way, they call it the Keyboard History Switcher, 
but I'm going to keep calling it the standard name, which is Clipboard Manager. So in Keyboard Maestro, to use the Clipboard Manager, you copy a bunch of things one after another, and that puts them all into a buffer together one after another, and then you go to where you want to paste, then you have to open up Keyboard Maestro, which you can do with a keystroke, and then I've been copying each thing out of it to paste. At least that's how I thought it was supposed to work, and I was confused on how this would possibly save any time or any keystrokes. If I have to copy everything to get it into Keyboard Maestro, and then I have to go copy it again to get it out, that didn't seem like it was very useful. While at MaxDoc, I cornered Dave Hamilton during one of the breaks to ask him about this. I made it very clear that I believed him that clipboard managers were useful, but I just couldn't find a use case for me where they made any sense. I was not at all resistant to learning how to use them or embracing them, but rather I wanted to get it through my head where they and how they could be useful to me. Now, Dave explained that one of the main reasons to use a clipboard manager is to keep your brain in one context. If you need to copy, switch to another app, paste, switch back, do some more stuff, copy, switch back, during all those switches, your brain gets easily distracted and you're likely to start doing something unrelated or at the very least lose focus on the task at hand. Okay, I'll buy that. That makes sense. Now, while we were sitting there, I brought up Keyboard Maestro and I showed him how I was trying to use it and how it seemed like a waste if after switching to where I wanted to paste, I had to copy again from Keyboard Maestro. The first and most important thing he showed me was that you don't have to copy and paste from Keyboard Maestro, but rather just arrow down to the thing you want and then hit enter, and that does the pasting for you. Okay, it's a little better, but it still seemed like a fair amount of overhead to me. I showed him that there are numbers next to each copied item, and it seemed reasonable to me that when I invoke Keyboard Maestro when I'm already there to start pasting, I should be able to use those numbers to just grab the one I want instead of arrowing down a bunch and then hitting enter. However, hitting those numbers just jumps to some random thing I copied, not to the one corresponding to the number I've typed. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in the story and explain that I wrote to the developers and I got a response that the numbers are just for reference and not intended to allow you to jump to that specific item. I didn't at the time that I got this message back understand what for reference meant till later in the story. Okay, back to MaxDoc. Around this time, Brett Terpstra, one of the most fascinating people I've met at MaxDoc, or pretty much in life in general, came wandering over to see what we were up to. He and Dave started talking about how clipboard managers are at the core of existence in an existential world, and how could I not grok that yet? Didn't really help much because I already believed, but I couldn't yet see why this was so. I decided to show them a place where I believed a clipboard manager could help me, but I couldn't see a way to get it to work. It was so wasteful of steps. The use case I have is putting in chapter marks for the podcast. Let me explain what I have to do for each one. I put the cursor in the recording where I want the chapter. By the way, this is in the application Hindenburg. So I'm making my recording like I am right now. I put the cursor in the recording where I want the chapter. I hit command shift enter to create the chapter mark. This adds a row up above the recording area where I have to enter the chapter info. There are three fields. I have to enter the chapter mark name, the URL title, and the URL. Now, not all chapters need all three fields, but my chapters usually take you right to the blog post corresponding to the current recording, so I do need all three. To execute this without a clipboard manager is really tedious because I have to copy the title of the post from my blogging tool, MarsEdit, command tab over to Hindenburg, click on the field twice to get it to highlight, paste it into that field, then tab to paste to the second title field, then command tab back to Mars edit, right click to copy the URL, then command tab back to Hindenburg, and keep going. It's, all, it's just very, very tedious. 
I showed this to Dave and demonstrated how it didn't really help me to use a clipboard manager because Hindenburg loses focus as soon as you click away. Now, he made a really good point here. He said, it's not that clipboard managers aren't useful. It's that Hindenburg is not using the official Apple APIs that should keep focus on that field when I tab away. So there's a reason it wasn't working as well as it should be and could be in other cases. Now, at this point, Dave and Brett and I sort of came up with a solution collaboratively. Here we were talking about using Keyboard Maestro as a clipboard manager, but Keyboard Maestro is actually an automation tool. What if we could use Keyboard Maestro's automation talents in conjunction with its clipboard manager to solve the entire problem? Now, I got to laugh because uh, Brett in his talk later in the day explained that he can brainstorm anything. So this was clearly his special talent area. Now, Dave has done a lot of automation with Keyboard Maestro, and I've done a tiny bit. I told him that I have found that Keyboard Maestro's automations are very fragile. They work once or twice, but something changes and they fail. Undaunted, though, we marched ahead. Here's the basics of what we created together. We decided that I would copy the URL first, then the title. So the most recent item in the clipboard history would be the title. Then we executed the following steps. Type the return keystroke first. That selects the name of the chapter mark ready to be changed. Then paste the most recent item. That's easy. That's just the title. Then we had Keyboard Maestro enter a tab key, which brings us over to the URL title field. Then we paste again, which is still that most recent item. We'll have the title in there twice. That's fine. Next, it's going to tab to the URL field. And here's for the tricky bit. We have to set the system clipboard to paste clipboard one and then hit paste. I'll explain what that is. The system clipboard part was the bit I would have never figured out on my own. You see, the clipboard manager inside Keyboard Maestro has the most recent item in position zero. The one before it is in position one, etc. So it'd be zero, one, two, three, four, five, like any good array. So this command uh, is saying, take the item one back in the clipboard manager and move it into the main system keyboard uh, clipboard into position zero. That puts our URL into the normal system clipboard so that we can now paste it. Now, remember those numbers next to the past history items in the Clipboard Manager and Keyboard Maestro, and he said they were just for reference and I wanted them to actually do something else? Now we know what they meant. The number I just used to move something from the past clipboard to the system clipboard is indicated by that little number. So it is there for reference and it is useful. After we created our eight-line macro and did a bit of fussing around to get it to work, it finally did work. We had a huge celebration, Dave and I high-fiving like the nerds that we are. The next day, I decided to practice using this macro so that I could get some muscle memory. Guess what? It failed. I can't say I was surprised because that's happened to every single keyboard maestro automation I have ever written to date. They are fragile. But I was disappointed because I really thought this was going to help me. Now, the specific failure was that the URL being pasted into the URL title, or the URL was being pasted into all three fields instead of, wait, no, I'm getting this wrong. The specific failure was that the URL was being pasted into the URL title field as well as its own field. So it wasn't working properly. I started searching for help online. The documentation is all in a wiki and it's far from complete. The document I was working with was merely listed, but or the command, I should say, was merely listed, but it was not fully explained. In the developer's Q&A section, though, he answered somebody's question by saying, just watch out for timing issues whenever you are reordering the clipboard. Setting the clipboard is a synchronous action, whereas paste via command V is a queued action. So it is not hard for them to get out of sync. Now, I 
instantly understood the problem. But I have to tell you a story about why I understood the problem. BART's goal in programming by stealth hasn't been to teach us HTML or CSS or JavaScript or any of the other tools he's taught us. His goal has been to teach us to program. He wants us to learn how the specific languages work so that we learn about the structure and concepts of programming. In a few recent episodes of Programming by Stealth, Bart taught us about AJAX calls to servers and how synchronization is an issue. The problem with AJAX calls is that the answers you get back may not be in the order of the requests that you made. As soon as I saw the note from the developer of Keyboard Maestro, it clicked in my brain that this was the same problem you have with AJAX. Now, I watched David Spark's Keyboard Maestro field guide, and I remember him saying that he often had to put pauses into his code. But that very same week, I heard Marco Arment say on the Accidental Tech Podcast that if you were putting pauses in your code, you were doing it wrong. You were a bad programmer. I thought maybe David just wasn't using Keyboard Maestro properly. However, while there are elegant methods to get around the problem of synchronous server calls in AJAX, they call them promises, Keyboard Maestro has no such methods. So I figured I'd try a pause just like David recommended. And adding the pause before moving the clipboard contents around, it worked like a champ. Even better, it worked the second and third and fourth times I tested it. So the fragility appears to have been stabilized. Now the tricky part is I have to remember to copy the things in the right order. Because if I copy them out of order, man, they get all pasted in the wrong order. By the way, I'd like to give a shout out to a gentleman named Elliot that I met at uh, MacStock who helped me word some of this properly. And uh, he says that he's a pedant because he was being quite pedantic about my wording of synchronous and asynchronous and talk about Ajax. But I promised that I would give him a hard time publicly on the podcast for helping me. No good deed goes unpunished, right? Anyway, I'm delighted that I now have a keystroke I can use to eliminate this annoying copy, tab, paste, tab problem from my workflow. I've tested it tonight, and it's still working. I suspect it'll it'll take a while to get good at using it, but I'm motivated because I really hate that copy, tab, paste, tab, copy, paste. Oh, it's so annoying. Now, what hasn't happened yet is me falling in love with the concept of a clipboard manager. Dave talked about our conversation about clipboard managers during a recent Mac Geek Gab, and Larry Lush heard it and wrote to me suggesting a clipboard manager called Copy and Paste, from Appy, well, I don't know how to pronounce this, A-P-P-R-Y, where.com. Anyway, it's copy, apostrophe, E-M, paste. These people, the way they name things. Anyway, I've got a link in the show notes to it, of course. And Larry swears by it. And he says that he has tried them all. Just skip right to this one to copy and paste because none of the other ones are as good as this. Now, it's $15 in the Mac App Store, so I've kind of had my finger hovering over the buy button for about a week now. It's funny, if you'd ask me to give you 15 bucks for no reason, I'd hand it to you, but why is that such a big number when you're buying an app? Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and buy it. I'm going to commit right here. I am going to do it, and I'm going to give it a try, and I'll tell you whether I love it as much as Larry. Anyway, uh, the nice thing about copy and paste is that the numbers next to the copied items actually do allow you to paste. So maybe I will come to love clipboard managers as much as everybody else, and I will report back either way. Now, I know I can never hold a candle to Frank on doing my pledge break, but I will do my best. This week, Boris Brockman and Caleb Fong both became patrons of the Podfeet podcast. I can't decide which one of these gentlemen made me happier with their contributions. On the one hand, I've never spoken to Boris directly, so it's super cool to know that he's out there listening and getting value for the work we put in there. 
I love that so many of the patrons are people that, you know, don't bother me and call me a pedant or aren't pedant. No, anyway, uh, you know, it's just it's just interesting. There's people who contribute that I've never l- really spoken to. On the other hand, we've got Caleb doing audio contributions and helping out like crazy in our Slack community, podfeet.com slash Slack, and yet he still felt the desire to contribute to support the show financially. I've decided that they both rock. If you'd like to rock like Boris and Caleb, please take a moment to go over to podfeet.com slash Patreon and choose a dollar amount that's right for you and your family to support the show. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchot. Nice to be back in the saddle with you here, Bart. Yeah, nice to be talking to you again. It seems like only yesterday we were chatting. Oh, wait. <laughs> it was. We did a, we did a chit-chat together, so uh, we'll we'll see if we can keep our, our lingo correct for this this show, right? Well, I think the topic's quite different this time when we have three mediums to charge through, so lots of security fun to talk about. Oh, I love Probably. the mediums. Yeah, actually, the mediums aren't related to the fact that it was Black Hat Week, but the rest of the security news is pretty much full of Black Hat or originating stories. So obviously the security researchers like to have their big announcements for that big conference. Yeah, yeah, that's always fun. Yeah. So the <laughs> first story we get to... of fun, right, of course, right? Well, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting, <laughs> as in may you live in interesting times, perhaps. Exactly. Um, actually, that's one of my favorite things. You know the, you know, you know the actual full Chinese curse because it's even worse than just may you live in interesting times. What is it? May you live in interesting times and come to the attention of important people. <laughs> that's horrible. Is it? I would talk about a curse and a half. Right, right. That's doubling down. Yeah. All right. What do we got okay, to chew so- on? First security medium, I have, initially I was going to call it the Siri kerfuffle, but actually it's it developed and kept developing into a much bigger story. So it now has the new title, Human Review of Voice Assistant Recordings. Okay. So this kicked off with an article by the Guardian newspaper from the UK, um, and it escalated from there, really. But at the end of the day... What it boils down to is that when Apple said that they kept our anonymized Siri recordings for analysis, what they meant was we kept your recordings for grading by human beings and specifically by outside contractors. Not grading so, whether we were saying things properly, but whether it was understanding us. Well, yes. So, and <laughs> Apple had said clearly in their privacy and in fact i remember them even telling us on stage that they anonymize them and they keep them for six months semi-anonymized and then up to 24 months fully anonymized and that they would analyze them to help improve the service and i think we all just mentally assumed that apple as a computer company said analyze that they meant computers but actually Hmm. they meant human beings would be at least a part of that analysis and they didn't say they wouldn't but we, I think we all just assumed that if they didn't say there would be humans involved, there would be no humans involved. So on the one hand, you can say, well, Apple have set themselves this stupendously high bar of saying they're better than everyone else. And on the other hand, you can right. say, yeah, but this is actually entirely in keeping with their privacy policy. But either way, the bottom line is that there were human beings listening to some of these recordings. And The Guardian interviewed some of these human beings. And those human beings, although... the they were anonymized snippets. Those snippets 
often can or not often at times contain very sensitive information stuff like medical conversations conversations with lawyers conversations with um accountants and perhaps conspiracy to commit a crime in one or two mm. cases this is and what the the people interviewed by the guardian said yeah now this is obviously the plural of anecdote is not data so if if you're assuming that every conversation was full of juicy stuff i don't think that's how it worked at all but over a year working there i'm guessing you would pick up on the odd interesting conversation mm-hmm. now what seems to be a, one of the things Apple was focusing on with this program was trying to make Siri better at recognizing her name, as in figuring out why she goes off when she's not supposed to. So okay. figuring out what's going on when she pipes up for no apparent reason from the corner of the room and starts saying, hello, I didn't understand you, or I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. So these accidental triggers are one of the things Apple is trying to fix, and one of the things these reviewers were working on and by definition, that means that these are conversations people didn't intend to have with Siri. Right. Now, I, I have, I've been saying recently that I think Siri has really improved because now she gets triggered just as often as uh, Amazon's A-Lady. <laughs> okay, so she's as bad as the rest. As a- <laughs> she stepped yeah. up again. Well, she didn't used to. So my echo would go off all the time, but the HomePod would sit there quite silently. And now the, the oh. HomePod's like every 10 minutes going, hey, you talking to me? Oh, okay. That's see, that's oh, that's worse. <laughs> right. That's what I mean. I mean, it never used to. Wow, interesting. So obviously, these human reviewers are not doing a very good job. <laughs> right. Right. Anyway, the story developed from there, so it continued on from that, and we soon realized. So we already knew from a few weeks ago that Amazon had humans reviewing stuff, and that Amazon was keeping these things indefinitely, and Amazon were up to some really nasty stuff some horrible abuses going on in Amazon's um, centers where these things were being analyzed. That was a whole big kerfuffle about three or four weeks ago. And what we've also learned since is that Google were using humans. And we also learned that Skype is using humans for improving their near real-time translation service on Skype. And apparently, according to some records, also for Cortana. So Hmm. basically, everyone's doing this. Um. A German court ordered Google to stop, and very much at the same time, Apple suspended their human analysis, and Google suspended their human analysis. But I haven't been able to find any reporting about what Microsoft did. And then just as we were going to record Let's Talk Apple, I think it was just breaking as we were recording Let's Talk Apple, we got news that Amazon had suspended their human review. So, so when you we said know Germany, for- German court, was that part of GDPR? I don't know. Okay. Um, I don't know. Um, but I think basically, I don't know whether Apple said we'd stop before Google did, but within like one time of me checking my RSS reader, that all sort of happened at once, as far as like, mm. you know, as far as it appeared to me. So Apple, Google, and um, Amazon have suspended this, and I cannot find any evidence that Microsoft have or haven't. It, it, there's just no news, so I don't know. Okay. Uh, what we also know then is that Apple have been explicit and they have said that the ser- they are going to reintroduce human reviews, but not until they have added in some extra UI into Siri so that you can leave Siri enabled, but opt out of human review. So oh, I think okay. Yeah. So we seem to have ended up in what's probably the place we should have started, ideally speaking. You know, 
if Apple are going to to sort of live up to the very high bar they've set for themselves as being a privacy focused company, then I think they should have always had that toggle there. And so on the on the whole, I think we're ending up where we want to be. And speaking purely personally, I will be leaving that toggle set to it's okay to review my stuff because I actually do want Siri to get better. And so I'm right. happy to do that, understanding the risks and the dangers because I don't they're think they're in, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's I think it's fine. So I, I don't it's, it's it's kind of interesting here. They've turned it off, but we have a toggle to opt out of it. If it's off, why do we have a toggle to opt out of it? No, right now it's, we don't have gone. a toggle. I'm saying when they bring it back, there oh, will be a toggle. Oh, when they bring it back, there will be a toggle. Okay, so they still will be doing it. But right, only yeah. to people who've toggled, yes. Now, John Syracuse was talking about this on Accidental Tech Podcast, and he had an interesting perspective that wouldn't work, but I still liked where he was going with it. He said, what I want is a button that says, send this one to Apple. No, like it just got it completely wrong. I mean, he had, it, it, you know, the, the example I'm sure you've seen where you dictate it accurately writes down precisely what you said and then answers a different question. So he had asked, uh, apparently you can ask your iPhone, um, what operating system are you running? And it said, uh, what operating system are, am I running or are you running? And it came back and it said, the volume is two. <laughs> what that, what's that got to do with anything? So he wants a way to send that to Apple. But the problem is you would have to have a button always there that says this didn't work, right? Because it, it doesn't know it didn't work. Unless you tell it it didn't work, and how is it going to tell you if you don't, or how are you going to tell it if it doesn't have a button? So that's why his idea is flawed. But I still like where he's going. Like shake well, the phone. What you could have is that randomly say one percent of the time Siri pop and says, "How did I do?" And then if you say mm-hmm. not well, she could then say, "Can I share this with Apple?" Yeah, it's a lot of nagware though. Okay, what I, what I'd really like is it to listen for. That's not what I said. Or shut up, Siri. Those those are the things you, that you say, right? I want there actually to be a, an anti keyword, a, 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 an appropriate way for me to tell Siri that she activated incorrectly. I, I, basically, because at the moment I have one that basically F star star K Siri. <laughs> right, actually, well, F she, star star K off Siri. She doesn't yeah. like that. She gets very cranky with me over that, and I'm like, "Well, I'm cranky at you. You just." You started it. You started it, yeah. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast while cooking, and now my recipe is replaced with a black screen with a squiggly line, and you typing everything the podcast is saying. <laughs> Quite accurately. But that's not the point. <laughs> Quite accurately. I love it. <laughs> anyway, so that, oh. that's sort of where we stand with all of this shenanigans. Okay. Uh, security medium number the second, then, is a... Very important warning highlighted by the Washington Post. Beware of privacy invading browser plugins. Mm-hmm. So the Washington Post did a great bit of, re- of reporting in conjunction with some security researchers where they shone a light on a long-standing avenue of abuse of our privacy, which is our browser plugins. So a little bit of background. JavaScript within a web page, as we're discovering in programming by stealth, is highly sandboxed. You cannot use JavaScript in your web browser to interact with your operating system, to, you know, have a little browser around your file system, see what apps you're running. There's, there's just no way for JavaScript to reach out and do any of those things from your browser. It's entirely sandboxed. And not only is it sandboxed within your browser, you, your JavaScript can't even reach outside of the website it belongs to. The thing called the same origin policy. So JavaScript running on podfeet.com can't interact with JavaScript running on allisonsbank.org. And that's so, annoying. I want it to be able to do that <laughs> as a programmer, there, but I understand why. 
I was going to say, you do and you don't, because yes, you could right. do really cool things if you could, but the privacy implications would be massive. Yeah. And that is where browser plugins, that's the problem browser plugins solve. So browser plugins are still sandboxed away from the OS. They have very limited interaction with the OS mediated by the browser. Like I think, I think the APIs allow them to save files in one or two trusted folders so that they can save a state for themselves to remember what they were doing between you know browser sessions. Mm-hmm. So they have a little bit of interaction there. They can listen on ports. They, you know, a browser plugin can interact with an with, with its parent app, like one password browser plugin can talk to one password the app. So there's there's a little bit of, you know, reaching outside the browser, but it's very heavily controlled and sandboxed. So it's 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 far from free reign on your computer. But within the browser, looking the other way, browser plugins do have massive free reign. A browser plugin can see all of the tabs you have open, what URL they're at, what HTML, CSS and JavaScript is within them, and it can actually alter the CSS and JavaScript and HTML within those tabs, which is how it can be a plugin. So, mm. right, what good would 1Password be as a plugin if it couldn't tell what website you were on, couldn't write the username or password into the text box, and couldn't hit the login button? Mm-hmm. Oh, and couldn't right. talk to its, its its master app. What What would be the point of that plugin? There would be no point. Right, right. So it's not a bug that browser plugins have access into your web pages. It's literally what they were invented to do. Now, that opens up all sorts of extremely useful possibilities, but it also opens up the potential for abuse. And it means that while we don't, many people don't think of it this way, the act of installing a plugin is the expression of trust in that plugin's developer. You are trusting that plugin's developer with the rights to see everything you do on the internet. And I don't think we're used to thinking of browser plugins like that. And we no, need to start all. thinking of them. Yeah. Because that's what is happening. And that's what has always been happening. We just haven't been thinking about it that way. And we we should have been, and we probably should have been encouraged to do so more by the browser manufacturers. But we were living in a sort of a utopian wonderland where, you know, especially in the open source Firefox and uh, community in particular, there was this sort of feeling of everyone's a good guy and we're all here to help each other and is an open source a utopia. And in that world, a lot of browser plugins were genuinely, you know, just people in their own free time sharing cool stuff. But that's not where it stayed. And we're back to follow the money. So if there's a commercial company offering a free browser plugin, What's going on here? Because they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. How are they financing that? The answer is, they are watching everything you do in every tab and selling it to the advertising industry. Oh. And they can see a lot, because not only can they see every URL you are at, but they can tell how long you stay in every web page. They can watch you scroll up and down. They can watch every button you click. So they really understand what gets you engaged and what you merely have in the background. So they actually have extremely valuable information at their disposal. And so a lot of these plugins just provide a small amount of useful functionality as an excuse to get into your browser, but their actual business model is selling this data. So that would suggest that everybody would be doing that. 
Well, it wouldn't, right? Because if someone like one password were to be caught doing that, it would be the end of their company. So it's right, by no means. A- right, but there's uh, the vast majority of plugins are just fun little, you know. Free right, but if they're fun little things, cool. Released by the open source community, that's not a for profit company that needs to be making money. Hmm. Right, the open source community, like the podcasting community, you and I are part of. That's that is real and that exists. And there are lots of things that are free because they're community driven. But there are also lots of things that are free from commercial enterprises, and they're the suspicious ones. Okay. Because they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. So why are they doing it? Well, the answer is they're doing it for money, but I'm not paying for it. Hang on a second. Well, how do you if tell the I'm difference, not... though? That's where it comes down to you are expressing trust. So you're going to have to start thinking about this like you think about installing apps on your phone. Is this from a company I trust? Or has this been recommended to me by a person or organization I trust? And if the answer hmm. is no, then I would say don't install the plugin. So you should end up with very few browser plugins, but browser plugins that do things that you really want from companies you trust. So in my case, that's I have two browser plugins. I have one password and I have Pocket. Hmm. I have a lot. I, I know. Mean, not, a lot, not a lot, but they're um, Grammarly, but that's one that does have a business model. So I understand that. Uh, but we have just heard from Caleb by the time this is airing. We have heard from Caleb on a, um, a really cool browser plugin called Tablist that gives you a real beautiful interface for your new tabs. It's pretty cool. But I don't know anything about that company. You said, did I get it from somebody I trust? Yes, I trust Caleb. But Caleb, I believe, crawls the internet finding cool stuff. I don't know that he goes through and says, let me check their business case, because I don't think there is a business case there. I don't it think there is a business case. It may be a community file. plugin, you know, just... It's on GitHub. Does that help? Hmm? It's on GitHub. Does that help? Yeah, that means it's probably open source, yes. So, so if it's open source, you tend, to, you tend to uh, trust it better. Trust it more. Yes, well, because also you could go have a wee poke to the code if you wanted to. And then you don't have to, but anyone can, right? If it's sitting there in right. GitHub, if it's doing something nefarious, it's it's doing it Somebody in plain sight of nerds. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I see that that helps. That gives me a way to, um, to, to figure it out. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the actual original Washington Post story actually lists some of the offending plugins, which they found to be sharing the data. So that may be useful too. Hmm. Okay. Cool. Security Medium 3, then. I wasn't sure whether or not to promote it up to Medium, but I couldn't fit it into one bullet point, so promoted it became. <laughs> A small medium. Yeah. Medium light. Yeah, pretty heavy all in all. Capital One got themselves a wee bit hacked. Yeah. So this one affects Canadians and Americans, primarily Americans, but still quite a few Canadians. Um, so. Capital One, at least, this wasn't reported on by others. Capital One at least came out about it themselves, which is good. So Capital One announced that their systems had been hacked and that a whole bunch of people's data had been accessed. Specifically, data from 100 million Americans and 6 million Canadians thought to be affected. Most of, okay, no, so none of that data includes credit card details, but... 1% of it does include social security numbers for US people and social insurance numbers for Canadians. That breaks down, strangely enough, out of those 100 million Americans, only 140,000 um, social, social security numbers. Social security numbers. 
Okay. But out of those 6 million Canadians, 1 million social oh. insurance numbers. So one in Yikes. six Canadians affected. Much so not credit card information, just the stuff you need to get one. Yeah, because this breach involved two cohorts of people, customers of Capital One and people who applied for a credit card. <laughs> so so people, isn't this data already in the uh, Equifax breach, at least for the U.S.? There's Probably. a good chance of an overlap, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so for the, for for those people who are not covered by the one percent, um, of, well, actually for everyone, right? So the one percent lost social security slash insurance number as well as everything I'm about to list now. So name, address, zip code, postal code, phone number, email address, date of birth, and self-reported income. So basically, what I was filling in to get a credit card, uh, and also for customers, so not applicants, but customers, credit scores, credit limits, balances, payment history, and contact information, as well as, quote, fragments of transaction data from a total of 23 days during 2016, 2017, and 2018, and even about 80,000 linked bank account numbers. Oh, jeez. Yikes. So pretty you know, bad. Yeah. The fragments of transaction data being 23 days during three separate years, sort of, it reminds me of some of those hacks you've told us about where if you just keep sifting through the data, you get a little bit each time. It, it mm. smells like that, you know, like how would you get 23 days out of three years? That's really odd. There's obviously just snippets of a log file saved somewhere because they were interesting or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So do they know how this was hacked? I don't believe so. I don't believe that's, I don't believe that's been reported on. Hmm. Um, what we do have is an official US and Canadian FAQ from Capital One where they lay out basically all the data and how many people are involved, which is actually easy to read. It was a real help to me compiling the notes. So that was nice. <laughs> and then we have a whole bunch of reporting on it and some opinion stories and a bizarre fallout where someone has decided to sue GitHub over this hmm? because huh? some of the code used to exfiltrate the data. So I guess we do know some of it. I don't think we know how the code got in. Actually, apologies. I think we do know some of this. I believe there was a rogue employee involved. It's coming back to me now. Um, I, okay. I wasn't really focusing on the how, to be honest. I believe there was a rogue employee involved. Anyway, some of the code used was on GitHub. So none of the actual data was on GitHub, but some of the code. And the lawsuit was like, well, I mean, any GitHub should just self filter out every nine-digit number because yeah. it must be a social security number. Oh, jeez. Yeah, boneheaded nonsense. So I'm hoping that gets thrown out of court. But it, nonetheless, oh, Microsoft but, has big uh, pockets, pockets for lawyers. It does. And they, I'm sure they have them on retainer. So that probably <laughs> should be okay. Well, if, yeah, if not resident, I would yeah. suspect many of them resident. Yeah. Wow. So that then brings us to notable security updates. Uh, small update to updates. Um, I think we talked last time about 10.14.6 coming out for macOS Mojave. I don't Mojave. remember knowing about that. You may have said that, but I didn't remember that. Oh, that's an update for a sleep issue, huh? Yeah, so they released the update for Mojave and then unreleased the update for Mojave for some machines with T2 chips because if you are not running Mojave, with some combination of T1 or T2 and specific versions of macOS, the machines would go to sleep and then crash when they tried to wake up. Oh, yikes. So it, you, no one, it wasn't breaking any machines and it wasn't losing people data, but it was making people annoyed and cranky. 
Um, so Apple paused pushing out the update, and now they have updated the update, and so rolling that out again. Okay. You know, uh, I haven't Google. figured out... Hang on, I haven't figured out where to talk about this in the show because it's it's sort of a short story. It's a long story with a very short ending, but I basically have had a Mac that intermittently will never sleep. I wake it up in the morning and it's hot to the touch and I can look and I can see that it, it decided 2 a.m. was a time to get up and it's just been up ever since. I have been fighting with this for probably eight or ten months and I just solved it. Oh, it you was, mentioned it a few weeks ago, actually. On this, did I? Oh, okay. Anyway, I'll tell it again. It was the cable. no, no. Tell me how it finishes. Yeah, because last time we were talking about it, you hadn't got an answer. You just had a. You were cranky. Yeah. So it, I, I, you know, checked every single app. I shut every single thing down. I've rebooted NVRAM. You know, it, just every kind of reset you can imagine. I've unplugged every device possible. It only happened when I was plugged into my dock, but. If I'm not plugged in my dock, I close the lid and it sleeps just fine. And uh, I finally figured out it was the Thunderbolt 3 cable between my Mac and the monitor that was causing it. I'm sorry, my Mac and the dock. So I swapped out the Thunderbolt 3 because that was the only thing left. I unplugged everything. It wasn't the camera. It wasn't my microphone. It was, you know, all these different things. And it seemed to be maybe it was hardware related because I'd eliminated every single piece of software. And uh, that was it. It was a bad cable. Well, those cables have a little computer on each end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thunderbolt cables have a microprocessor at each plug. Right. So they're actually stupendously, quote unquote, clever, which means they have the ability to be really stupid. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was it was kind of interesting. It was one of the longer cables when I put in the short cable, which is really, really annoying, uh, because if I turn my monitor, it unplugs it. So it's oh. like it's that close. And uh, that one fixed it. So I, I ordered another uh, longer one. Um, From that it, company. Uh, yeah, I forget who. But it was I think it was actually a Belkin cable that was, was having the problem. But anyway. Well, that's unusual. I am decent. really happy. Yeah. Good. You know, stuff happens. Yeah, I was, I was delighted to finally have that fixed. Yeah. So Google have released their August Android patches. Um, and what's a little bit unusual is that um, we have so, we have a named bug, uh, Qualpone. And this affects Android devices with Qualcomm system on a chips. And this really seems to be focused on the high end of the Android market, stuff like the Samsung Galaxies and the Google Pixels being affected. Basically, some nasty remote code execution bugs in those phones with those Qualcomm SoCs. So as soon as that update filters its way through your manufacturer to you, you really should apply it if you if you have a high-end Android phone. All right. FileZilla have released a critical security update to address their open some nasty bugs in their open source SFTP client, and that's cool. But the reason I really want to talk about this story is because this is yet another example of the EU's bug bounty program for popular open source products paying off. So the European Commission recognized last year that a lot of commerce in Europe depends on open source projects like um, OpenSSL and stuff like that. And VLC benefited from this too. And after Heartbleed, the commission were like, whoa, this is a real vulnerability to us. We're relying on all this open source software, but we as a community should contribute to it because otherwise this is going to be a you know a poor commons. And so they created a bug bounty program for 
a specific list of the popular open source stuff used in Europe, like the Apache web server, VLC. Oh, what a great idea. Because somebody's got to pay for it, and, and it's not going to be a company because it's open source. Yeah. Huh. So the European Union are paying for this bug bounty program, and it's already we've it's already paid off a few times with fixes for VLC and stuff. Well, it's paid off again because that's how we got these important bug fixes for FileZilla. So I just thought it was really nice to be able to say something good. So, yeah. Yeah. And then finally, if you are a Windows user with an NVIDIA graphics card, they have released some fixes for high severity bugs on their GPUs when running on Windows. So you should uh, do that or update that. Okay. Notable news then. Um, It is important that you apply the iOS updates that were released recently because they patch six quote-unquote interactionless remote code execution bugs that can be triggered via iMessage. So basically, you as the user don't do anything, but someone sends you a maliciously crafted iMessage that tricks your phone into remote code execution due to these bugs. Ugh. So one of all six of these bugs have been addressed by Apple, and five of them appeared, are considered by the security researchers have been properly fixed, but the security researchers feel that one of Apple's six fixes isn't quite fixy enough. So at Black Hat, they released details of five and decided to withhold details of the sixth until Apple have a second go at patching it. Oh, that's so That's actually very responsible. Yeah, yeah, I thought for sure that was going to be a bit nasty when that they came out with that, yeah. Yeah, so basically, if you haven't patched yet, do so. There's a very good reason for for doing it. Yeah. Uh, Less good news. Security researchers have published details of three bugs in WhatsApp which allow for manipulation and unexpected publication of private messages. All three bugs were responsibly disclosed to Facebook last August, a year ago. In that entire year, Facebook slash WhatsApp have fixed one of them. That one bug allowed for a user to be tricked into thinking they were sending a private message, but that message would then get public, but get made as a public message instead of a private. And that's message. the one they fixed. That's the one they fixed. Okay. The two, the two they haven't fixed, which are remain today on WhatsApp, are bugs which allow for an attacker. So you're in a group conversation, and an attacker can alter the content of quoted messages and can alter messages sent by people so they say something the person didn't say. So basically, you cannot trust anything you read in a group chat on WhatsApp because, frankly, anyone could have actually said it. So they talked about this on the Daily Tech News show, and um, I don't remember if it was Tom or someone else on the show talked about that they. it's not that they haven't patched it. They've said that they they aren't going to and can't really patch it because the things that are happening are inside of an encrypted message. And picture this, Bart, you, me, and Alistair have an email conversation. I can change what you said you said in a previous message. And it was very much like that. That's one of the three is could be described like that. But the other one is that you can alter my message. So we're in a group conversation. We're all reading each other's messages. If I'm in a group email to you, you can't send email as me and have it say something I didn't say. I can, but if we've got a thread going, I can go back into that email and change what you said. Sure I can. Right, so that's the quoted bit. So that's the quoted bit. That's one right. of the three. The other one is that you can actually change my messages in this book. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not like in an email thread. So how... 
what's the difference between quoted and and messages? I don't okay, know. so we're in an e- we're in a WhatsApp conversation, and you see a, a message of mine in the history. I may not have wrote that. Right, that's not quoted. That's, that's not quoted. That's, so okay, quoted means quoted I would, would quote your I've, message and reply. Oh, okay, I got you. I got you. Yeah, you're right. To me, this, I see what you're saying. Yeah. To me, this means that you can't. Well, I suppose. Basically, if you're in a WhatsApp conversation, you just have to assume that everyone in that conversation is is friendly. Because if there's even one person in there who's hostile, then the whole thing is meaningless. Could be, yeah. Hmm. So, I guess you just need to be aware. Yeah. Okay. Um, but this is this 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 next story annoys me. Security, basically, this is from the Department of Why We Can't Have Nice Things, <laughs> and or from the story of Follow the Money. Security researchers have found that many popular robocall blocking apps like TrapCall, TrueCaller, and Haya are monetizing themselves by selling users' private information. Uh. So, on the one hand, some of these are free services by for-profit companies, so the old follow the money comes into play. But I did a bit of homework, and I went to these companies' websites, and TrapCall is not a free service. And they're monetizing by selling your information. Uh, so they're double dipping. And that makes me hate them twice as much. Right, because then we can't even follow the money to f- see whether we possibly could trust somebody. Yeah, I mean, that that's like uh, American ISPs both selling your privacy and charging far too much for internet. That makes me uber cranky because it's like, you know, you, it, it's just, you, you know, bleep me over one way, not two ways. <laughs> right, right, right. Not both directions. Yeah, it's, oh, it makes me very cranky, that particular approach. So anyway, that's something to be aware of. These, you know, we all want protection from robocallers. Well, sorry, if you don't, if you live in a country where robocalling is a problem, you want protection from robocallers, it would, I'm going to touch all of the wood, but so far in Ireland, I seem to be doing okay on that ground. We seem to have effective laws because uh, I don't get them. And I don't I, do I any don't apps. I don't why do I'm on, I don't I'm on the national no call list and I don't get calls. I don't really understand why this hits some people worse than others. I, I get one uh, once a month. I know people get like three a day. And they're, it's, I understand why I would be a likely target for spam, for example, because I put my, my uh, email address everywhere. But mm. people don't put their phone numbers everywhere. So how come some people – it might be because I have a, I have a very obscure area code, a very unusual area code. So maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's security breach, or maybe it's uh, data breaches. I don't know. I don't know yeah. is the answer. Yeah. I know Dorothy's husband just is just hammered by them. Um, AT&T and Verizon both have um, free. Now, Verizon was charging for theirs at first, but I think they changed it by now. But they have free robocall blocking services. And that oh, seemed good. to take the edge off, at least. Of the few I was getting, I seemed to be getting fewer. But well, that, I'm good. not a good test case. Um, okay, so then we get two fire extinguisher stories. Um, okay. So it is a true fact that security research, and I can't say true fact apparently, but I don't care. I'm going to say it anyway because it's a Oh, <laughs> hi, Jill. Hi, Jill. It's a turn of phrase. I am aware of the dictionary definitions of these words. I'm going to continue saying a fun turn of phrase. It's meant so whenever jest, we say tr- a- When we say true fact, we understand that facts are true. It is well, redundant for us to say true facts. Yes. It is a turn of <laughs> phrase, not in a scientific expression. Anyway, um, security researchers, 
Let me say that. Okay, security researchers have found a way to get around the liveness detection security enhancement in Apple's Face ID. So by default, Face ID will unlock your device when two things are true. One, it recognizes your face as being your face. And using their gaze detection algorithms, it sees that you're looking at the device. Now, you can turn off the gaze detection because for people with with certain uh, uh, disabilities, that's a problem. Like if you're visually impaired, you actually are not looking at your phone. If, particularly if you're like fully blind, you're not going to be looking at your and there's phone. There's people with false eyes and things like that. They get definitely have to turn it off. Exactly. So it's it, some people just never even have this added layer of protection. But if you, you know, by default, general, you have these two layers. So the first layer is obviously the most important layer. Is it your face? And the second layer is, are you looking at the phone? And it's supposed to protect from someone just vaguely waving your phone in front of your face and having it unlocked. So it's a good extra protection. So the security researchers found a way around the extra protection, not around tricking the face into unlocking with someone else's face, about tricking the phone into thinking that you're paying attention to it when you're not. And the way they do this is with a pair of glasses and some strategically placed black and white tape. Hmm. And basically, if they can get you unconscious in front of your phone, put these glasses on your face, then they can get the phone to unlock. So they need to have (laughs) you make you unconscious and your phone. (laughs) Okay. And these glasses. And and your head has to be in a freezer and... (laughs) Right. So this is scientifically interesting. Mm -hmm. This is some good research. This is an important data point for Apple in the ongoing cat and mouse game of security. So they obviously need to tweak their algorithms so that they can't be fooled by this technique. But in terms of real world actual danger to us human beings, us Apple users, this is a non-issue. So it is both factually true and not something you should panic about. Right. So second fire extinguisher story involves Apple's airdrop and password sharing features. Hmm. If you throw enough mats at them, and if you're physically close enough to someone as they are using these features, you can determine some information. And this is information that leaks inside of Bluetooth packets. And it includes MAC addresses and perhaps cell phone numbers and Apple have basically, the security researchers have said that Apple have done their absolute best to obscure this information by hashing it. Um, but for various technical reasons, it can't be not present. It just has to be obscured as well as possible. And if you throw enough maths at it, the security researchers were able to reconstruct the obscured data. Hmm. So really, this is one of those things that maybe in an update, Apple can obscure it a little bit more and make it harder to break. But... To some extent, this may never be fully fixable. Um, so ultimately, the thing to be aware of is that if you don't use these features, then this doesn't happen. And the only radius of danger is Bluetooth range. So the takeaway I would take from this is don't use these kind of features in public places at security conferences like Black Cat or you know, in crowded spaces. But if you're sitting at home and you want to quickly share something with someone, I don't see any reason not to continue to do so. Let me let me ask a, a deeper question on that. Why do I care if somebody gets my MAC address or my cell phone number? Well, the cell phone number, I think, in particular, do you really want Maybe. random people knowing? But what's going to happen? 
I start getting more spam spam calls. I mean, to yeah. be honest, I mean, I, I I could see a high value target might not want that. You know? Yeah. I mean, look, it's none of this is catastrophic, right? Right. This is and my MAC address in particular. Do why do I care about that? So that one, that one, does, that one doesn't bother me at all, to be honest. Yeah. So I, I don't think I'm going to lose any sleep using this in a in a you know maybe not at Black Hat just because that's where they're going to have some fun. But you're not carrying your real phone at Black Hat anyway. Not if you're, you're not, not if you're turning smart, it on. <laughs> you're certainly not airdropping at Black Hat. If you are, you're no, new. <laughs> no, no. Burner phones are definitely the order of the day at Black Hat. If you, yeah. If you, yeah. If you want to survive in the digital gene pool. So I'm going to give that one two fire extinguishers. Two fire in extinguishers my, in my okay. book. Uh, Speaking of Black Cat, Apple were at this year's Black Cat and Apple made some announcements and these are very much happy making announcements. So two things. First off, Apple are going to supply security researchers with special iPhones with extra debugging tools to allow them to see deeper under the hood and extra access to the phones, including a root shell and SSH access. This is so awesome. Yes. So basically no more having the jailbreaker phone to do security research. Security researchers can just get in and watch the innards of the phone do its thing on an app, an iPhone supplied by Apple. So this is wonderful. This is really going to help researchers help Apple to fix bugs. This is pretty Now it's not going to be all researchers, right? You have to be of a certain caliber. You need to be trusted judge. with one of these phones. Yeah. Right, but I mean I don't expect there's going to be millions of these phones out there. Probably or not tens millions, of no. thousands. Hundreds. Maybe? I don't know if it's hundreds or thousands, but probably more than ten. There's got to be some sort of judgment of the of the security researcher, but uh, yeah, it's only good. It's only it's good. all good news, yeah. And the other big development is that Apple are expanding their bug bounty program. So they were slow to the game to have a bug bounty program at all, and then I think it was about a year ago they released an iOS only bug bounty program, and I think that was basically a beta of bug bounties within mm. Apple. Because this year they have expanded the program. It now covers all of their operating systems and the maximum payout if you can find a zero-click kernel code execution with persistence, in other words, the worst kind of bug imaginable, you can now get a cool one million dollars. Oh. Which is pretty cool. Changing careers. Yeah. So basically there's now a bug bounty program for all of Apple's operating systems. And if you're a trusted security researcher, Apple are going to start handing out special phones with extra tools to help you do your job. So good, good. Yeah, yeah, all good. It took them a while to get that bug bunny program, but that's good. Yeah. So and it's probably better in the long run that they did it. They rolled it out slowly instead of jumping straight to here. And, you know, they got their teething problems out of the way with the iOS only program from last year. And so this seems like a sensible way to to get there, to get cut up. So this is good. Uh, we had said in our original um, GDPR discussion that a lot of the detail would get ironed out over time as cases came to court and the exact implications of the regulation became clear. Well, one more of them has become clear. The ECJ, which is the initials for the Court of Justice of the European Union. No, it doesn't make any sense. Carry on. <laughs> um, the ECJ has ruled that websites that choose to embed Facebook like buttons on their site are joint <gasps> data controllers with Facebook under no. the regulations of the GDPR. So that oh. means they're responsible for getting appropriate user consent, etc. Oh, that's that's superb, isn't it? Yes, yes it is. And it's that, very that would sensible. slightly discourage the the technique. It should do because it basically means that you you now have to 
communicate to your users that we are taking part in this program and we're sharing exactly this information with Facebook and they need to be open and honest about it. And that can only be a good thing. So I wonder how, how quickly that's going to change the, uh, the landscape. I don't know. We shall have to see. Facebook say that they are working on getting guidelines together to help people using their like buttons. Say that, say that one more time. So Facebook or Facebook's lawyers are busy getting together guidelines, basically helper packages to help okay. people meet their legal obligations. Man, I, that's oh, I hope to see some fun happen there. I just yeah. really do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there we go. That's all good stuff. So suggested reading. Um, first off, some PSAs, tips, and advice. Um, even if so, this is a warning from Brian Krebs. Even if you have two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication enabled on your bank, do not use a weak password because a whole bunch of banks have bypasses for their 2FA and their MFA to facilitate financial apps and services like Mint, Played, Yodely, and YNAB. Why? Probably because their integrations with these services are too old and stupid to deal with 2FA or MFA. So if you reuse the password, people can use backdoors effectively. So they can they can use your guest username and password that you reuse from something else on Mint and then via that Mint's special access get into your bank stuff. <sighs> so basically, always use a good password in your bank, even if you have MFA or 2FA. Don't let that be an excuse for not having a good password too. By the way, I have a uh, yet another reason it irritates the crap out of me when companies only allow 2FA using text messaging. Mm-hmm. What happens when you go to Canada and you've got a Google Fi card in your phone and you don't have you your don't phone your number? Messages. No, you can't log in. That's what well, I mean. You yeah, don't you don't get your message. So. Yeah, so I was I had twice there were things I needed to do and I could not mm-hmm. do them when I was in Canada. I just okay. like, ah, but look over here. I've got this authenticator. I could have used that, but no. Yeah. Time to start my hate mail to my bank again. Yeah, good. Uh, there's a warning from ZDNet. And they, there is a lot of activity in the security community. Apparently, there's an attack being carried out at the moment where Synology NAS devices are being targeted by brute force password attacks. And then if they get in... They're putting ransomware on your NAS. So if you have a NAS that is exposed to the internet, make sure it has a strong password so it stands up to password brute forcing and obviously password stuffing. Don't reuse the password anywhere else. Yeah, just don't use re- reuse passwords. <laughs> don't reuse passwords and don't use weak ones, especially ever, not on NAS that's pointed at the internet. Why, I know this really cool service called xkpasswd.net <laughs> that allows you to create secure, memorable passwords that are easily typable. You should check it out. And then press the PayPal button to give Bart money for an awesome service. Thank you. <laughs> this commercial was endorsed by bartb.ie. <laughs> um, there's a few other suggested stuff in there. Um, everything you need, about, you need to know about iCloud Keychain and don't let crooks borrow you. Crooks borrow your home router as a hacking server. Just two interesting articles. <laughs> okay. 
Notable breaches and privacy violations. Um, I definitely want to put a star next to some developments in the Equifax story. So we heard last Mm. time that Equifax were going to pay lots and lots of money. Well, it turns out that they got some fine print put into that bloody settlement. And they're limited in the amount of money they'll actually have to pay out. So the more people apply for the cash payout instead of the free monitoring, the less money everyone's actually going to get. Because... If you go over, if they, if more people apply than the, than the limit allows, they just start pro rata, everyone loses money. So basically, if you want value for money, go for the free credit monitoring. Don't go for the money because it's looking almost certain that you're not going to get anywhere near the money you think you're going to get. Yeah, that's really annoying. Crappy. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, but very yeah. annoying. I mean, I already have free credit reporting from when the, uh, from when the United oh. States government lost all my stuff. Yeah. Also, the FTC are warning uh, that there's a whole bunch of scammy people using this as to try fish people. So be aware of fake Equifax settlement websites. The UK have an internet-only bank called Monzo. They unfortunately accidentally recorded people's PIN numbers in their logs. <laughs> They're contacting affected customers. Uh, so that's one to bear in mind, but oops, oopsie, oops, oops. Jeez. And then as we were recording, pretty much as we went to record two weeks ago, news was breaking that Amazon had gotten into some really quite shady agreements with local police services. It seems to be mainly in the US from what I can figure out. This is about we're, Ring, by the way. Yeah, where basically the police services would agree to shill Ring's cameras and then they have this sort of thing where you can join into a community and the end result is that the police get easier access to all of the videos you record and the police become salespeople for ring doorbells it just seems deeply shady so i i have a strong opinion on this um i have a ring video doorbell i have two ring uh, video cameras and i have a ring alarm system that i bought after i formed this opinion they have good hardware and it does really cool stuff. And the price is very, very competitive with other better than some other companies, especially for the uh, uh, after you buy enough of the equipment. However, Ring has consistently been sleazy from a management yeah. perspective. I'm going to remind people that uh, they Ring had on their website that a, uh, a button that said download the app in the Mac App Store. And I clicked it and it downloaded a DMG. And I wrote to them yeah. and said, what, what is that? And they said, and they said, oh, well, you know, we've, we've applied for a Mac app store, uh, you know, for the app in the Mac app store. And so we just put it up early. And I said, well, no, I don't think you should do that. He said, oh yeah, but we're really close. We think we're going to get it next week. And next week came and went and I nagged and nagged and nagged them. Finally, the CEO, Jamie wrote to me and said, yeah, no, we never submitted this to the Mac app store. So they, I have it in writing that they lied to me about it. And then it took me more than a month to get them to take it down. I mean, it was just like, that was like 30 seconds to change the logo, you know, to swap out a graphic on their website. And it took me a month of nagging. I mean, because I was not, you know, once I get one of these things in my cry, I'm not letting it go. And I mean, they just, they consistently do things like that, that are sleazy. So I'm not in the least bit surprised that they did this. Um, I have been hoping that Amazon will de-sleazify them. That that something like mm. this will will have them because I, I I doubt that this was I mean Amazon just bought them so I I bet yeah. this has been in place for quite some time from Ring. Yeah, I think so. Um, and so hopefully, actually, this, fingers crossed, you're right that the new ownership will do some house cleaning. 
Certainly yeah. a lot of negative publicity about this. So Amazon have certainly got plenty of incentive to, to bring a broom in and do some sweeping. <laughs> Desleazify. Yeah. Yeah. Twitter then were caught with their pants marginally down. Um, they, uh, it, it has emerged that there were two bugs found in their code that were resulting in them sharing more information than they should have. So since March of 2018, clicking on some ads may have resulted in some information about your interaction, including your OS, the app you're using, and your country code being shared with partners like Google's DoubleClick ad network. Hmm. Uh, Twitter don't know how many people were affected. And then the second problem was that device-specific ads were being shown to users who had explicitly opted out of device-specific ads, <laughs> like me. Mm. And this bug was introduced in September 2018, so it's almost a year's worth of me being targeted with ads when I had explicitly said, do not target me with ads. So, mm. yay. This is the official Twitter app? Uh, it's not clear to me whether it's only the... I don't think it's the app. I think it's the web service and the app. I'd no, because there's clear. no ads in Tweetbot, for example. They're right, just but Tweetbot is not... Okay, so Tweetbot is a third-party app. It's not third-party apps. But right, think, but that's what I'm saying. I don't know so whether... I don't know whether it's only the website or only the official app or both the website and the official app, because I think they would be very much the same. Yeah. But on Twitter's point of view, the web is real and everything else is silly. It's pretty clear that they're locking down their APIs, that GERD, ShakeFist, etc. Yeah. And there's some other stuff. LinkedIn are up to some shady stuff that's probably against the rules in libraries in the United States. Um, link there if people are interested. And if you are the parent of a child and you own something called a Leap Pad, you need to disable. You need to delete an app from that Leap Pad called Pet Chat, and then it will be secure again. Oh, okay. And then we jump onto news, and we I remind you are in suggested reading. And the reason this news article is here is because it has the opposite icon of a fire extinguisher. <laughs> this is real, and there is no way to protect ourselves. Urgent 11 is the catchy nickname given to 11 critical vulnerabilities in an operating system you've probably never heard of, but I guarantee you is in your house. Possibly in your car. It's all over the place. It's a real-time operating system, or Air, or ORTOS. Uh, called VX Works. I and know that powered... one. I used to pay for it in my old company. It's yeah, tremendous... yeah. It's the real time operating system, right? It's everywhere. It's, it's in like the. It's, on it's in those. On uh, Mars. It's in the phones. The uh, like the plant. Tra- those uh, uh, full duplex phones that are in the middle of a table. I'm drawing a triangle with my fingers right now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like yeah. Pretty much any device you can shake a stick at that isn't running Linux is probably running VX Works. Um. Airport routers. We got a security update out of the blue a few weeks ago, and we thought that was a bit weird. Now we know why, because the airports run VxWorks, so they've been patched. So that's one VxWorks device I know is safe, because we have patches. But Mm. these things are in IoT devices everywhere, and we're going to be stuck with this for years. Basically, you send a packet at them, and they get remote code execution. So if it's an IoT, if it's a device that's running VxWorks and that is connected to the internet in any way, then it can be remotely exploited. And the only way to fix it is for the vendor to update their version of VxWorks in their firmware on their device. You, as the end user, have no idea what OS is on your device, and you have no way of checking, and you have no way of doing anything about it. So basically, if an IoT device offers you a security update, patch, 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 
If they don't, maybe the thing is horribly vulnerable. Who knows? I don't. Maybe it's fine. Yeah. This is why awesome. we're in medium. I do not have a good answer for you here. If there's an update, patch. If there isn't, pray. Mm. <laughs> Your approach of a separate network seems very sensible, though. Yeah. We should also mention that uh, the young man who was at the center of the WannaCry virus getting stopped, um, and then he got arrested because before he became a good guy, he was he's now a white hat hacker, but he didn't used to be a white hat. He used to be a black hat, and he, in his late teenage years, he was involved in bank fraud and stuff, and then he turned over a leaf, and in his good life, he helped stop this nasty outbreak of malware, and then he came to give a talk in the U.S., and he got arrested for the stuff he did before he became a good guy, and he got prosecuted. That. The good news is, so he has been prosecuted, but his sentence is time served, so he's oh. released. Oh, well, that's good. And he basically said, thank you very much, Judge, for recognizing the fact that I've turned over a new leaf. I really, really appreciate the court's leniency. And he's dead right. The court did go easy on him, and they probably should have, in my opinion. So basically, about as good of an outcome as you can get, because he was guilty, but he is now free. Yeah. So, I mean, they certainly could have thrown the book at him, but yes. they looked at his past record. That's great. Yeah. So I think that's as good an ending as we could have hoped for on that one. Uh, less about good endings. A report from the U.S. Senate has found that all 50 states' electoral systems were targeted by Russian hackers in the last election. Just, you know, bear that in mind that you're about to have another one. Um, and if you're wondering whether or not you should continue to be careful installing apps on smartphones, yes, you should. Research highlighted by the next web shows that Google Play hosted 205 harmful apps with 32 million downloads in the last month alone. Holy Basically, cow. Yeah, because it's a constant cat and mouse game. So Google take these things down when they come to their attention, but they don't take them down instantly because they don't have a time machine. Hmm. So two, 32 million installs. But, you know, your, your advice is to only install apps you have a reason to trust. I, I, mm -hmm. I don't have any filter to know the answer to that. I mean, if I go into so the Google Play Store... Well, yeah, but then that's like, okay, install none. Don't use your devices. Don't turn off the internet. That's, that doesn't really, uh, that doesn't really help. I mean, if, if I have an iPhone or an Android phone and I go into the app store, I don't know whether somebody's trustworthy. I have no filter. I have nothing at all to go on. I mean, if I pay okay, for it, well, all I can say is, bad. I'm sorry. I wish but I had a magic I, wand. I do no, but not. I'm just saying I it's not. I, I, no, I'm just saying the the advice to only download apps you trust is meaningless because there's no way to know. Okay, the app. That's okay, all. then we'll simplify it. Every time you click install, you are choosing to trust. Yeah, and, and, and the more, and the more apps and the more apps you install, the greater your your target is on you. I'll give you that. Yes. Yeah. So basically, if all you take away from this is when I click buy, I'm clicking trust. That's progress. <laughs> yeah. Sad progress. Can't I know. have nice things. Yeah, I know. I know. It makes you very sad. Uh, there's lots more stuff in there, but I want to skip ahead. There's been some more stuff in the whole war on privacy, Five Eyes Nations demanding access to encrypted messages, yada, yada, not nice, not nice. But then I want to give a special shout out to uh, Nasilla Castaway uh, at Gaudior, I'm going to pronounce it, G-A-U-D-I-O-R on Twitter. He tweeted at me saying, here's a great series of four articles from the ACLU detailing their objections to UK GCHQ's so-called ghost user proposal. 
as mm. is the case with the ACLU in general, well-reasoned, sensible arguments against this idea. If you're curious, there are four nice articles from the ACLU for you to go read. Do we know for sure that Gardiori is a man? Uh, the picture that came up suggested. on the tweet definitely suggested so. Okay. And I believe the real name that also showed up on Twitter was Mark or David or something like that. Okay. All right. Um, opinion and analysis, some fun stuff in here. Two, I have a highlights next to, um, Apple Insider have a nice story outlining what exactly it is that those T2 chips do. Okay. They're security hmm. enhancements. Okay. Tell me more. Click on link, read more. Um, and then an interesting article from Brian Krebs and a report by the California, California into their elections, basically outlining some of the really boring low level stuff that could make a huge difference in election security in California. Stuff like two factor authentication on the Twitter accounts of election officials. It's not sexy. It's not exciting, but it could make the difference between election chaos and an orderly election. So it's kind of interesting that a lot of times this isn't about fancy pants stuff. It's about the boring, mundane, being mm -hmm. careful. I thought that was an interesting read. Yeah. Uh, skipping ahead to Propeller Beanie, Alison, I have some light reading for you at bedtime. So you <laughs> very... You made a, you, was it your bank you were fighting with? You were fighting with someone and you basically read NIST's password uh, guidelines. Right, right. And I, frankly, it's a good document. I've, I've read through it as well with my work hat on. Uh, it's a very useful document to have at your disposal because whenever people have bad ideas, you can just point them at the NIST document and they go, actually, here's why it's a bad idea. Well, you have another one to read. NIST have published a multi-factor authentication practice guide. Oh, <laughs> you can nice. Add that to <laughs> and given actually that you want to talk to your bank about SMS two-factor auth, maybe this is the perfect timing. You now have a I new guess. NIST report. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, just what you wanted. Anyway, palate cleansing. Um, it was National Sysadmins Day recently, um, so we have two fun bits of nerdy humor. Naked Security ran a story, Sysadmins need to know, how do you pronounce pseudo? Most of the article is actually a really interesting discussion of pseudo, what it is, where it came from, and that kind of stuff, uh, before it talks about the, you know, is it pseudo or pseudo, and I won't spoil the ending, but... <laughs> anyway, I actually thought it was strangely interesting. And then XKCD also took themselves to the party with a comic uh, dealing with Sysadmin Day. Uh, so in honor of us Sysadmins, uh, we have an obvious hostage situation going on. Some guy with a cell phone in his hand and a gun. We took the hostages, secured the building, and cut the communication lines, like you said. Excellent. Comes out of the phone. But then this guy climbed up the ventilation ducts and walked across broken glass, killing anyone who we sent to stop him. And he rescued the hostages, comes a voice from the phone. Oh no, he ignored them. He just reconnected cables we cut, muttering something about uptime. And then coming out of the phone, you hear the voice going, bleep word, we're dealing with the sysadmin. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. And then the hover text is the weird sense of juicy, really good sysadmins have can border on psychopathic, but it's nice to know that it sounds between the forces of darkness. Oops, bloody hover text going away. Uh, and your cat blogs server. <laughs> that's awesome. So anyway, that's, that's all she wrote this week. 
Well, that was a uh, roller coaster. We went up, we went down, we went up, we went down, we went back up at the end. I do try to end on a bank up because otherwise we just all leave here depressed and that would be terrible. <laughs> yeah, well, there was a bunch of up stuff in the middle. Yeah, there is. So, you know, it wasn't it's, too bad. Like, like always, it's a mix of good things and bad things because security is just news and news is both good and bad. Right, right. All right. Well, we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks on the security issue. Indeed we shall. And until next time, I'm hoping everyone knows what they should do. They should stay patched so they stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Podfeet.com slash Patreon, podfeet.com slash Facebook, podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Eric, Roger, and Elliot did for the first time this week, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.